0: welcome to the littlestown chapel podcast when you get an opportunity check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org now we hope you enjoy this message by pastor scott morgan for the last several weeks we've been looking at a section in the book of revelation the last book of the bible of course revelation is known about all the you know it's all about the future and what happens when christ returns and all the big catastrophic, cataclysmic events that are involved with that. And everybody wants to study Revelation to see those exciting, mysterious things, fantastic things about the future. But we forget that so often, we so often forget that at the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus is trying to get his people ready for his coming. And he does that by sending a series of letters to seven different churches. And the reason that there are seven churches is just the idea of these are representative of all churches at all different locations, all different times throughout the history of the church. And they have different situations, different peculiarities, and Jesus is addressing them and challenging them to focus on him. That the way you get ready for the coming of Christ is to fill your life with Christ and to let Christ be Lord of your life and let him be at the center of your life. And he's challenged them about loving him most of all. It's an all or nothing thing in following Jesus. And he's challenged them about making sure that they stand true and be faithful to Jesus in the midst of persecution. Because sometimes it's religious persecution or governmental or social persecution. But you need to stay true to Jesus and let nothing drive you away from him. Other times the the distraction that would keep us from really loving Christ is more subtle. It takes the form of an idol in our life that we love something or trust something more than we trust in Jesus. And so he challenges several of the churches in these letters to make sure that you root out all those idols, all those false teachings and make sure that you're focused on Christ alone. When we get to the very last letter, the letter to the church of Laodicea, which we're going to read today, It's a different issue, and I have to tell you that I think this letter is probably more appropriate for us in our situation, in our culture here in North America at this time in the 21st century than probably any of the other letters that we've looked at. I'm not trying to say that, that we're on some kind of timeline necessarily and this church, this letter matches up with the end of time right before Jesus comes back. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there are things culturally about the situation that we're living in, this, this world that we live in now, this is very, very, very much what Jesus is saying is very appropriate to challenge us and call us to be fully devoted to him. Because probably the, the, the characteristic, the dominant characteristic of Western Modern society is the reliance upon wealth, the drive and desire to accumulate more and more wealth. There's a, there's a philosophy in our culture that basically says this. Do you notice it? We're, I mean, we're entering into this season. It's the song of the season. And the song of the season basically is things satisfy. If you get more stuff, the happier you'll be. The more wealth you accumulate, the more security you'll experience. The more um, monetary possessions, the more material goods that you accumulate, the better your life will be. You'll be more secure, you'll be more happy, you'll have more power, and you'll be able to control the various things in your life as long as you have more and more stuff, more and more money. That's a challenge for us. Jesus addresses that challenge and calls out this church that was living in a culture that was very materialistic and they were very wealthy as a group of Christians. And he's challenging them to say, no, you can't treasure your wealth. No, you can't put your trust in your wealth. You need to put your trust in me. I'm your true treasure. I'm the, the riches that you're really seeking. I'm the one who's able to give you security. I'm the one who can bring true happiness. I'm the one that's in control of everything that there is. And if you trust in me and if you treasure me, then truly you'll have everything that really matters. See, if we want Christ more than anything else, then we'll have everything that really matters. We'll have everything that we truly need if we want Christ more than anything else. Now some of you right away are saying, look, I got to pay bills, so I got to have a job. And I got to make money, right? I got to put money in the bank. Someday I'm going to retire, so I got to get ready for that. I got to have insurance. I got to have, you know, my family deserves to go on a vacation, don't we? I, I need a car, don't I? I have to have a house or shelter, don't I? Of course, of course. All those things are true. But what are you trusting in? What are you looking for for your happiness? What are you looking for for your security? What are you looking for to try to bring order and stability and security and control of the chaotic things in your life? Are you relying on your wealth or are you relying on Christ? That's the dilemma we're facing. And what happens when that wealth disappears? What happens if we keep having the kind of weeks like we've had lately on the roller coaster stock market? Some of you have been watching that and you've been eating a lot of antacids, I understand. I hear Tum's stock is going up. That roller coaster. If you live by the market, if you live by what your bank accounts say, if you live what your credit limit is, if you live by how much money you have in your possessions, all that could be taken away from you, and then where will you be? Then what will you have? In all of this, our trust, our treasure must be Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying in this last letter, to the letter to the church of Laodicea. I want you to take your Bible. I want you to read with me one more time this morning. And I want us to look at what he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. I want you to see that. And I want you to notice his call for us to welcome Jesus, to open the door of our lives and let him in because he is our greatest treasure and if we treasure him more than anything else, then we'll have everything that really matters. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. This is on page 1030 if you're following along in the Bibles here at church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This is the word of the Lord. In this last letter that Jesus writes to the church to prepare them for the future, He challenges us to treasure Him, not just to love Him, not just to tear down any idols that are in His place, not just to stay true to Him in the face of persecution, but in the very depths of our being that we would say with all our hearts and think with all our minds that He is our treasure, that He is what we need and value more than anything else in all this world. Of all the possessions we could have, He is our greatest possession He is our greatest, richest treasure that we would treasure Jesus. After introducing himself to the church and reminding them of who he is, and we'll come back to that a little later in the message, he starts off like he does in all the other letters in verse 15. He says, I know your works. I know all about you. I've been watching you, listening to you, hearing what you think and say and do. I know all about you. And he doesn't commend them for anything. He doesn't say, I can see what you're doing in service to me like he does in other churches. Instead, what he says, you are neither hot nor cold. That's what I can say about you. You're not too hot, you're not too cold. You think you're just right. But really, you're not. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish you were really one way or the other, hot or cold. But instead, you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, it makes me sick and I want to throw up. I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you out. Sorry for bringing that up, but I just wanted you to know that that's what he's saying there. Why were they in such a mess? Verse 17, this is why I want to throw you up. This is why you're lukewarm. This is why you're neither hot nor cold. You say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, but in reality... You're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're miserable, you're just pitiable. You're a wretch. Now, you're saying that's not a very nice letter, but he's telling the truth. And he's trying to help us get back on track and do what we need to do in our relationship with him. You see, the people of Laodicea, the Christians there, thought they really didn't need Christ. They thought they could live as a Christian without Christ. I know that seems ridiculous, but that's a bit of what they were thinking. Why? Because they were so rich. They were wealthy Christians. Laodicea itself was a town that was situated on a set of crossroads. There was a trade route running north and south and east and west. And here they were at this junction of these two trade routes. It was a commercial hub a trading hub and there were a lot of banks there there were a lot of industries and and manufacturing centers there for for that time there were large herds of sheep that they would harvest their rich black wool raven black wool that was very soft and they would weave it and make it into beautiful cloaks and and garments and robes and it was highly prized these these elegant black robes that they would manufacture there. large banking industry as well financial trading and commerce storage and such as that, distribution. All of this was a very, it was a very wealthy place. On top of that, they had a prestigious medical school located in Laodicea as well that of all things specialized in the study of eye diseases. All this was going on in Laodicea and they were the the capital city for that region as well, a throne city. Laodicea was wealthy, it was affluent. They were successful and prosperous. They had nothing wrong. Everything was going for them. And Jesus says, actually, you're miserable. You're in terrible shape. They would take offense at that because Laodicea, as a town, had the image of we're self-sufficient. We can handle our problems ourselves. For example, in AD, AD 60, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed that city of Laodicea and many other cities in that region. And in our country, when there's a natural disaster, like a a terrible hurricane or maybe the wildfires in California, some other disaster like that, the towns and, and, and the municipalities in that region, they will, they will ask for the president to declare a, a state of emergency, a declared a disaster area. And when that happens, they're eligible for federal financial aid to help them rebuild. Rome, in the first century, offered that kind of financial assistance to all the cities that had been devastated in that earthquake. All the cities in that region took the financial aid except one, Laodicea, they said, we don't need your help. We can rebuild ourselves. In fact, they actually rebuilt their city even more beautiful and elegant and sophisticated than it was prior to the earthquake. We can handle it ourselves. We don't need your assistance, but thank you very much. We can take care of our own problems because look how wealthy we are. But Laodicea had a problem. It did have a difficulty. And its major problem was this. Other towns around them had their own supplies of water, but Laodicea did not. It was just a a commercial hub where the crossroads met, and, and that's what made it a strategic place and such a prosperous place. They had money, but they didn't have good water. If you went to the north to a town called Areopolis, they had hot mineral springs where people would flock and they would bathe in these pools of the hot mineral water and they thought that it was medicinal in value, that it would, you know, their, their sore, aching muscles, their, their problems, the physical ailments that they had. We'll just go sit in the hot springs and soak in the hot springs and, and that'll help heal our bodies of disease. To the east was the town, the city of Colossae, where we get our book, the Book of Colossians, in the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul. And at Colossae, they had mountains around the city that were covered with snow. And in the spring, the snows would melt, and that fresh snow melt would come down and fill their streams and fill their springs with sparkling, clear, cold, pure water. And people would go all around from would gather from all around to Colossae to drink the refreshing, invigorating water that they had. Laodicea had no water like that. In fact they had money so they built a pipeline, an aqueduct to bring water from the south. It was hot mineral water and it would come down and in fact it had so, much, so many minerals in it that actually they, the archeologists have found the pipes just covered with calcium deposits actually clogging the pipes. They, they found the artifacts showing that. But these pipes as they were clear, the water would be carried from six miles or so away and would be brought to the city and the people would drink it but it was it was lukewarm. Not cold like you need on a hot summer day when you're working, but not hot enough to bathe in or or to use in cooking. It was just kind of lukewarm and it just had to sit there and it was kind of useless until it either got cold or hot. You either heated it up on the stove or a fireplace or you let it sit around or you put it out in the snow later on in the winter. Then then it was useful. Paul says, or rather, Jesus is saying to the church there at Laodicea, you have put yourself in a position where you're useless to me. I wish you were either hot or cold. Hot's good, cold's good. Some people say, you know, hot is you're really on fire for the Lord and cold is you're an atheist and you hate God. No, he's, he's saying hot's good, cold's good. So he's not talking about spiritual fervor. He's talking about usefulness. You don't like the water in your city? That's what you're like to me. Why? Because you say you're rich and you have need of nothing and you say you're self-sufficient. What's wrong with being self-sufficient? I thought we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I I thought we were supposed to work hard and save and be industrious. I thought we're supposed to, you know, take our wealth and pay our bills with it and do that kind of stuff. What's wrong with being self-sufficient? There are three dangers that come from trusting in your wealth. And Jesus mentions all three of them here at the beginning of the letter. You see, it's not the wealth that's the problem. It's trusting in your wealth. Jesus never says that money is the root of all evil. He says it's the love of money. That's a very important caveat that we need to add there. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. That's what we have to watch out for. We have to be on guard that we're not trusting in our wealth or loving our wealth, finding our security in our wealth, but instead our love and our trust and our hope is in our God that we're relying on him. Here are the three dangers of trusting in wealth. The first danger, he says right here in verse 17, for he says, you say you're rich, you've prospered, you're accumulating wealth, and you say you have need of nothing. You say that there's no need you have. There's nothing you need. We're fine, thank you. We can take care of ourselves. That's what you say. But reality is, he says in the middle of verse 17, you don't realize, you don't know this, this is the fact, and you don't know the facts. Rather, you are wretched, you're miserable and you're unhappy. Really, if you look deep down in your soul, you've got all this stuff, but you're miserable. You've got all these things, but they just make you more worried and more anxious. You're worried about protecting them, because you think that those things are your security. That wealth is your security and your source of happiness. Actually, you're miserable. Not only are you miserable, but you're also pitiable. You're so pitiful. Other people look at you That's a shame. Look what's happened to them. But that's where you're at because you're trusting in your wealth. You think your wealth will give you security. You think your wealth will give you happiness, but it gives you the opposite. It makes you more anxious and more fretful and you're actually poor. Poor. In fact, he explains it now in very specific terms. You're actually poor. You own a lot of stuff, your bank accounts full, but you're poor. That's because you don't have the wealth that really matters. You don't have a relationship with me. You don't have security with me. You don't have my joy or my happiness or my peace that only I can give you. And the wealth you have will never give you that peace and will never get rid of your anxieties and will never give you the security that you're looking for. You're really poor. Not only are you really poor, but you're also blind. You can't see straight. You don't see what reality is all about. You think that I can be bought off. You think that if you just throw a little money in the offering plate or you give a little bit to the poor, you think that I'll be happy and I'll be able to look at you and be able to take care of you, if you, could, if, you know, like you're trying to appease me. No, you don't see the facts. You actually are blind to your real condition that your wealth is a wedge between you and me. You're trusting in your wealth and you think your wealth is a sign of spiritual prosperity and it's not. You think your wealth is a sign of your spiritual health, but it's not. Your wealth is a wedge, it's a barrier to you trusting in me and relying in me. And not only that, he says, you're not only poor and you're not only blind, but he says you're also naked. In that culture, nakedness was a sign of disgrace and shame. If your clothes were in tatters or, or somehow you were brought into judgment, your clothing would be stripped from you and you would be punished naked like that. And it was a shameful, disgraceful thing. And Jesus is saying, You're standing here in front of me and you're buck naked. And that's not something to be proud of or boast in. You should be ashamed. You should be ashamed because you have nothing to cover up your sinfulness, your shamefulness, your guilt. Only I can cover that for you. You see, the problem with wealth is that it deceives us. It actually leads to ignorance. This is the first danger of trusting in wealth. It will make you ignorant because you think I've got enough money to fix my problems. I've got enough money to make my life okay. When Jesus says, no, you don't. Because even with all that wealth, you're still broken and you're still a mess without me. And you need to see that. You need to understand that. You need to accept that, that it's true. But not only does this wealth lead to ignorance, it also, believe it or not, leads to uselessness. If you trust in your wealth, it makes you useless in the hands of God. You might be thinking, how can that be? Well, that's that whole imagery here with the the water. Jesus is saying, I wish wish you were like the water that was really hot, hot, hot out of the springs, the the mineral springs, or I wish it was the really, really cold water that everybody wants to drink. That's what I'm looking for, because those kinds of water is useful. But the water that's lukewarm, people just kind of set it aside until its temperature changes. It's kind of useless. And if you put your trust in your wealth, You're saying, I'm not depending on God and relying on His power. I'm depending on me and the wealth that I can amass. And this is why even if you do not consider yourself a wealthy, rich person, and let me just say this, you might not believe in this or agree with me, but compared to the vast majority of the people living on planet Earth, you and I are really, really, really rich because of the stuff that we have and what's accessible to us and caring for our needs. We are materialistic millionaires compared to the rest of the world. Now I get in our culture, none of us are part of the, the 1%. I understand that. But that's because our culture is so wealthy and so rich. Even if you're living on in a fixed income, you are still far more rich than the vast majority of people. Even if you've been laid off and you're struggling to pay your bills, you are still far more rich than the vast majority of people living in our world today. and and compared to people living in in previous generations as well. We have to accept that. So Jesus is saying here, look, when you are trusting in your wealth, that wealth will make you useless because you think that I've got the money to solve my problems and I've got money that's going to fix the church's needs or advance the kingdom of God. But no, it's prayer. It's trusting him. It's obedience. Those are the things that make us useful. If God blesses you with wealth, then say praise the Lord and use it, invest it in his kingdom. There's no question, do that. God will make some of you very wealthy. God will make others of us kind of average when it comes to wealth. Paul says there are times where I had a lot of money and there was times where I had very little money. But in either case, I learned to be content because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether I'm abased or I abound, I have enough because of the sufficiency of Christ. He's my treasure. When we trust our wealth, we put ourselves on the sidelines and God can't use us because we're not trusting Him, we're trusting in our wealth. Jesus says, you're lukewarm. You're that water everybody just sets aside until it either cools off or it gets hot again. Don't set yourself on the sidelines. Don't make yourself useless. But then this last thing that we really need to focus on, it's kind of revolting what Jesus says. But he says, you know, because you are lukewarm, I want to throw you up. I want to vomit. It's going to lead to your rejection if you choose to trust in your wealth. It will lead to his rejection of you. And you're saying, wait a minute, I thought our salvation was secure. That's true, it is. But I ask you if you're trusting in your wealth and you refuse to trust in Christ then you need to ask are you really trusting in Christ are you really relying on him you may say you're a Christian you may claim the name of Jesus but if you're still praying sin a sense you're focusing all your life's energy and all your work about amassing and finding security in your wealth then you need to ask the question do I really belong to Christ can Christ lead you? A man came up after the first service and he said, you know, I, I worked hard to build my home. I put a lot of my sweat equity into this home. I, I, I saved money. I did this. I built it. It's a beautiful home. And, and, and are you telling me God doesn't want me to have that home? I'm saying, no, I'm not saying that at all. And the same would go true to, you know, your car, your, your wardrobe, you know, the, you know, where you eat, the restaurants you go to. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is, what if God were to lead you to give up that home and move downtown to an apartment to minister there to the homeless people in Littlestown or Hanover? What if if he were calling you to go to the mission field to serve in a cross-cultural context? And it meant selling your home and giving it up. What if it meant really investing in such a way and making the sacrifice so your child could be that missionary? So that he or she could go out and serve in that cross-cultural context, and it would be a way for you to invest in the kingdom of God that way. Is your hope, your trust, and your wealth so strong that it would keep you from letting go of it if God called you to do that? That's, that's what we're, we need to be honest about. If our hope is in our wealth and we can't let go of it, that's a serious problem and maybe don't, we don't really belong to him. That's the parable, the story of, of the young man who was very wealthy who came to Jesus and Jesus tells him to sell all his, good and gives to, all his goods and give to the poor and the young man can't do it. Why? It's not that he's got to buy his salvation. It's that he was unwilling to let go of it to be free to serve Christ. There's no virtue in being poor, but there's certainly no virtue in being rich. And the Laodiceans thought they were virtuous and spiritually prosperous because they were materially prosperous. The teachers, the false teachers who teach that if you're wealthy, that's a sign of God's blessing. Oh, it is a sign of God's blessing, but it's also God's responsibility heaped upon you. But your poverty is not a sign of God's judgment. And just because you love God doesn't mean he's gonna make you wealthy. And that wealth is not an indication that things are right between you and God. In this case, this church thought they were wealthy because God had blessed them and they put their hope in their wealth and that wealth was a wedge between them and God. It was a wall between them and being useful with God. And Jesus says, you can't do that. There's a real danger, there's a peril for trusting in our wealth. We need to hear this. I need to hear this. But he challenges them as he continues the letter. And what he's challenging them to do is, I want you to change the focus in your mindset and understand that the wealth in the bank and the treasure in your house is not your ultimate security. Rather, I want you to see the promise of true wealth that comes from treasuring me. Because what Jesus says in the rest of the letter is simply this, if you treasure Jesus, you have everything you need. If Jesus is the source of your riches, if He's your highest, most priceless treasure, then everything that matters is yours already because you've got Him, He's your greatest treasure. Look what he says in verse 18. Now he's already kind of given an indictment, given the diagnosis. He's like a financial planner helping you look at your assets and your your expenditures and your budget and your, your liabilities, and he's going through all that and he's saying, I just want you to know that there's actually a deficit here. You're poor, blind, and naked. You're really a mess. You're miserable. So like a good CPA, a good financial planner, this is where you're really at, and you're in bad shape because you've invested in the wrong things. You've gone to the wrong stores and bought the wrong stuff. You think you're rich, but you're really not. You're very poor and blind and naked. So here's what I advise you to do. And he uses a word that just simply says, this is my advice. It's kind of understated to get the point across a little dramatically. You know, if I were you, this is what I would do. Instead of, I command you. It's a bit of an understated way just to get our attention. He says, I advise you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Well, look, he's already gotten after them about being wealthy and trusting in their wealth. So he's not saying go out and buy gold bullion. He's telling them to buy true spiritual gold true wealth, true riches. We read in other places in Scripture that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and rely on Him, we get a salvation that's like pure gold, refined by fire. And in 1 Peter, it talks about the refining of the fire, the refining of our faith. It's through suffering. And he's saying, put your trust in me. You'll have the gold that you really need you have spiritual riches with me. And yes, they'll get refined and they'll get refined through the suffering of life. But you don't go through that suffering by yourself. You go through it with me. You have true gold that no suffering can take away from you. So I I counsel you, I advise you, buy that gold from me. Have true spiritual wealth that you may be truly wealthy, truly rich because you're not rich now. You're not wealthy now. And then he says, I want you to buy white garments from me. So that white robes literally, literally. so you can clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. There you are. You think you're dressed so finely in those black robes with that fine soft wool, that raven's black wool. You're wearing that and other fine clothing that money has bought for you. But you know what? You're actually standing before me and standing before everybody else covered with your shame, covered with your disgrace because of sin. You're actually naked and you need to cover that up. And the only way that you can cover that up is through the righteousness of Christ. That's what those white robes represent. The righteousness that Christ gives to us. He lived a perfect life and died in our place so that we could receive his righteousness as a gift so we could be forgiven and accepted by God so that when God looks at us, even though I'm the biggest screw-up in the world, even though I've sinned so terribly, even though I failed to keep his law, I can still stand before him and he say, I love you, I accept you, I fully approve of you because you're covered with the righteousness of my son Jesus, it's on you. You're dressed for true spiritual success because you're covered with the righteousness of Christ. He says, I urge you to buy those white robes. You need those. You need to dress like that. That's what all the saints of God are wearing. And then he says, you're blind, so you need something for the blindness. So I counsel you, I advise you, go and get some eye salve from me. Not that fergian that's really what they called it, fergian powder that they manufactured there in Laodicea. They took the different minerals and such and they mixed it with water and they made like a doughy paste and they would rub it on their eyes to try to get rid of the different infections and stuff that people would be afflicted with in their eyes. And he says, I, I'm, I'm asking you, you need to get the eye salve from me. Don't run down to CVS or Rite Aid, just, just come to me. I'm the source of those white robes. I'm the source of that pure gold. You come to me. And when you come to me, I've got this eye salve and you put it on your eyes and you rub it in and you will see. You'll see reality, who you really are and your needs. And you'll see who I am, that I'm the all-sufficient Savior you've been looking for. You'll see. But you need to come to me. And when you treasure me, everything else that matters will be yours as well. True wealth, true righteousness, true sight will be yours. Now notice what he says in verse 19, because in verse 19, he just he kind of reminds us, because I can imagine the, the Laodiceans you know, reading this letter, hearing this letter, they're kind of squirming in their seats and saying, man, why is he busting on us so hard today? You know, every now and then someone will say up to me after church, preacher, you were preaching to me today. You were stepping on my toes. Don't worry, I was stepping on mine as well. They were probably thinking that. So Jesus wants to assure them and say, this is his motive for offering this true wealth to them, supplying this all-sufficient wealth to them. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I love you. So I want to correct you I want to show you and rebuke you that what you're doing is wrong. It is wrong for me to let you think that you're really wealthy when you're very poor. It's wrong for me to let you think that you really can see what's going on when you're actually blind. It's wrong for me to let you think that you're dressed to the best when really you're naked and you need to be covered because of your sinful disgrace and shame. So if I love you, I'm going to help you find true wealth and true righteousness and true sight. I love you. So yes, I'm rebuking you. And yes, I'm correcting you and disciplining you as I say this. But I love you. And because I love you and because I'm calling you to do this, you need to be zealous. You need to be earnest about this. Take this seriously and do something about it. Stop trusting in your wealth Stop trusting in your material possessions and put your trust in me. Instead of hoarding more and more things, get more and more of me. Learn more and more of me. Draw closer and closer to me. Be earnest about this and repent. Come back to me. Because really, I'm the treasure that you're seeking. The treasure you're really looking for. It's me. Come back to me. In fact... If you're worried about coming back to him and you're not sure you know how or can, look at verse 20. Because in verse 20, guess what? Jesus has come to you. He's come to you. Even though you didn't invite him, he's come to you. And he says in verse 20, would you read verse 20 out loud with me? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. How many of you have ever seen that picture of Jesus, you know, in his robe, long brown blonde hair, standing there just kind of knocking on the door. Maybe he's got a lantern in his hand. He's not he's waiting for somebody to open the door. Knock knock knock. Hello, hello. We often look at this verse and we say that this is a salvation verse. That You know, if sinners would just open the door, Jesus will come in. You know, invite Jesus into your heart. And if you invite him into your heart, he will come in and make himself at home there and and do that. And you can use the verse that way, but that's not really what this is about. It's about a church that is so full of themselves and so self-satisfied because of their wealth and their trust in their wealth. Jesus is knocking on the door and saying, hey, I'm out here. I'm really the treasure you need. Let me in. May I come in? And the thing that I find very fascinating here is that he does say, whoever opens the door, if anyone hears and opens my uh, here's my voice and opens the door I will come in to that person it, it's personalized it's, it's not just Jesus standing out there by the red doors banging on the glass asking to come in he's standing in front of you your life the door of your life and he's he's gently knocking and he's calling and he's challenging you will you trust me will you invite me in will you let me become your greatest treasure? He's not going to barge in. He's not going to demand access and kick kick the door down with a battering ram. He's not going to do that. He's waiting for you to invite him in. He's waiting for you to just answer the door. Let him in. And look what happens when he comes in. Everything you're really looking for in this life, he brings. He said, I don't see that. He says, well, think about what this means. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What do you need more than anything else? A new, vital, reconciled relationship with God. In the ancient world, when enemies would finally start making peace they would invite one another to their homes and they would share a meal and they would begin working out their differences over that meal there's something about food that just helps everyone relax It's something about food that just causes us to engage conversation. We often just look at food as a way to consume energy and get fuel to go out and do the next thing when God so often wants us to see that food is something that we just are supposed to linger over and fellowship over and enjoy sharing together. And Jesus is saying, I'm willing to come into your life. You think you need to chase me down? Guess what? I've already come to you and I'm knocking on your door and I'm calling to you. Would you just let me in? And when I come in, I, the ultimate uninvited guest, when I come in, I invite you to invite me. When I come in, you will eat with me. You will dine with me. And I will dine with you. And he's emphatic there. He will dine with me. None of this like at Thanksgiving time where they've got the grown-up table and then there's the little kids' table. None of that. Now, I know little kids sometimes want to be with their cousins, but I remember thinking, okay, I'll sit with the little kids, but I really want to be with the grown-ups and hear what they're talking about. Jesus is saying, no, you'll be at my table and you'll be with me. You'll dine with me. You'll share life with me. You'll share my blessings with me. You'll share me with me. All my life with me. You'll have that. I'm calling to you and knocking on your door. Will you open the door? I think he's saying, will you trust in me? And make me your greatest treasure. I am what you're looking for and longing for. Will you trust me? Now, as he finishes this letter, he finishes it like he does all the other ones, and he gives a word of hope and encouragement to the person who's the overcomer, the person who is victorious, the person who does what Jesus says and perseveres in doing it, trusts him and perseveres in it. And he says, to the overcomer, to the one who conquers, I will grant, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Laodicea was the capital of uh, Cilicia and Pontus, two regions there in ancient Asia Minor. Rome had given them the right to have a king sit on the throne over that territory. And Jesus is saying, you want a real throne, you can come sit on my throne, right here next to me on my throne. And you know, my throne is right next to my father's throne. If you overcome, if you keep trusting me, you you make me your greatest treasure and you rely on me, you can come and sit with me for all eternity in this position of honor and glory and authority because I overcame in my life and I'm sitting right next to my father in the place of highest authority and honor in all of heaven. I'm seated next to him because I overcame. How did he overcome? He overcame when he went to the cross and he died in our place when he rose from the dead and ascended into glory. He overcame all of our enemies, sin, death, and the devil himself. He conquered them. He overcame them. So now, Jesus, our victorious Christ, is seated in a throne of glory and he shares that throne of glory with everyone who treasures him and trusts in him and invites him in. Now, The thing is, there's something about this letter though that bugs me and it bothers me. Not just the materialism issue because I'm so materialistic myself. But Jesus says, the person who comes to me, they need to buy this gold and buy these white robes and and buy this eye salve. And every time I've read this, I've kind of wrestled with like, I thought salvation was a gift. I thought it was something that I couldn't earn or work for. I thought it's something that he just gave because I asked for it and I'm trusting in him. Why does he tell me to buy it? I think it's important for us to understand that he's asking us to acquire it from him. And if you stop and think about it, there's no way we could buy this gold. And there's no way we could buy these robes of white and righteousness. And there's no way we could ever buy the healing power that would restore our spiritual sight and help us see God's reality. There's no way we could buy that on our own. There's no way we could earn it. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, he invites us to come to him and receive everybody who's thirsty. Come and get a drink and you can get this water and you can buy it without paying a price. And if you're hungry, here's food and you can get it without paying a price. Why? Because he's already paid for it. You acquire it because the price has already been paid. He paid for it through his own death, through his own sacrifice, that act of overcoming sin, death, and the devil. As he did that, he paid the price so that you could receive that true righteousness That true spiritual wealth, that true spiritual sight, it's a gift that comes to you because He paid the price. And you can trust in Him. And if that's not enough to encourage you to open that door and make Jesus your greatest treasure, just look how He introduces Himself at the beginning of this letter. Jesus says, I'm the amen. Verse 14, I'm the amen. Amen is a a Hebrew word that just simply means so be it. It's not just the password that allows your prayer to get through. It just simply means so be it. You know, may this really come true. I'm in agreement with God and those of us who are praying. I'm trusting you, God, to do this. May it really come true. So be it. And Jesus is saying I am God so be it in the flesh. I'm the amen. Whatever God has promised I make happen. I have that kind of authority. Notice that he also describes him here himself here as the faithful and true witness. I'm the genuine witness, the genuine article and I'm the one who's faithful and reliable. But the thing I want to focus on is that that word witness. It comes from the Greek word that just simply we translate into English. It's literally transliterated the word martyr. In the early days of the church, the people who died for Christ, they were witnesses of Christ. They were martyrs for Christ. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is the witness of what God is doing and I showed that witness by my death for you. By paying that price for you by rising from the dead for you. I am the faithful and true martyr. No one can argue against the witness I am bearing through my death and resurrection. But then he even says this, I'm the beginning of God's creation. I'm the source. That's what that word beginning literally means. Not just the start of it, but I'm the source of the creation. All of the creative things, all the things of creation that we see here, they came from me. All the the wealth that's in this world, all the material goods of this world, all this stuff that you've accumulated as as you have there in Laodicea, you rich Christians, all this material goods, all these material possessions, I made all this stuff. Yes, you may have refined it, you may have put it together, but all the material goods that made your wealth possible came from me. I created it all. You think you're in control? You think you own everything? I created it all. I own everything. It all belongs to me. I'm the beginning of the creation of God. And not only this old creation, but he's the creator of the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, our new bodies after the resurrection that we're waiting for. He owns all of that too. You think you're wealthy? You and I are paupers compared to Christ. So, if you really want to be spiritually wealthy, if you really want to have spiritual security, if you really want to have something bring control to your life, if you truly are looking for a lasting, deep, soul satisfying happiness, then doesn't it make sense? To stop trusting in our wealth and the money we have in the bank and our credit power and our material possessions, our property, our real estate, our financial power, our networks. Doesn't it make sense to stop trusting in that stuff that one day will be destroyed? And trust the one who has the treasure that will last forever because he is Lord of all. He owns it all. He paid for it all. And he wants to be your greatest treasure. Just open the door. Just surrender to him. And he will come in. And he will satisfy every deep longing of your soul when you rely on him as we conclude our service, I just want to kind of make this really clear that for some of us, you know, maybe we're anxious about our jobs and our financial status and, and all of that. Uh, maybe that's something you just need to give the Lord and say, Lord, help me do what I can do, but I ultimately have to depend on you. And maybe, maybe we've been trying to, we, we've put our hope in our wealth, our investment portfolio, you know, our insurance policies, our years with the company. Maybe we're relying on all of that for our security when really Jesus is saying, just trust in, in me, treasure me, because I'm your deepest, greatest treasure. Maybe it's just surrendering to Him and saying, God, forgive me for trusting in my wealth. Help me trust in you. Yeah, God gives you wealth to pay your bills. Great. God pay, gives you wealth to invest in His kingdom. Great but what's your greatest treasure? Is it really Jesus? Are you depending on him? I'll be up front here afterwards, if you have a question, if you want prayer, you've got something you're concerned about, I would be happy to pray with you and encourage you, and and, uh, may this Thanksgiving season we truly treasure Jesus more than anything else. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that uh, in our great poverty You are able to make us rich. And in our blindness, you give us sight. And in our nakedness, you clothe us with your righteousness. And I thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are the treasure that we seek and the treasure that we need. I ask that, Lord, we would trust in you with all our hearts and cry out to you. I ask that we would open the door and invite you in as you have invited us to do. Thank you, Lord. That you came looking for us. Even though we didn't deserve you in any way. You came looking for us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We treasure you. May we always honor you. Amen.